Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now, your host, Bela Zebraff on The Definitive Rap. Hello, and welcome to The Definitive Rap. I am Bela Zebraff. Thank you to Vin News for hosting our show. There are lots of authors out there who write fictional stories. Being an avid reader, nothing is more enjoyable and relaxing to me than reading a good book. However, there are good books, and then there are books that not only do they talk to you, but when you close that book after you're done reading, you're left with a passion and desire for justice and doing what is right and doing what is just, not only for the characters in the book, but for society. I'm talking about the celebrated award-winning novelist, journalist, and playwright Naomi Reagan. Her first book, Jefty's Daughter, was listed among the 100 most important Jewish books of all time. Her best-selling novels include Sota, The Covenant, The Sisters, Wise, Devil in Jerusalem, and others. I have read them all. Naomi is an outspoken advocate for women's rights, an active warrior against anti-Israel and anti-Semitic propaganda, and she has lived in Israel since 1971. Naomi Reagan, Welcome, welcome, welcome to the definitive rap. I'm going to sound like a silly girl, but I have to say this. I am starstruck. I've been such a fan of yours forever. Your books, I didn't just read them. I ingested them. And I don't just speak for myself. I speak for all your fans out there. Because your books are not just stories. They talk to the reader. You are tapping into the essence of the reader. And that's a gift that you have and that you share so readily. Naomi, a recurring theme in your books are injustice against Haredi women. Can you tell me what inspires you to do that? Well, thank you, first of all, for having me. Um, it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to speak to people like you who read my books and have enjoyed them and maybe we can get a little deeper into them. But Please. I think you've touched a very important point when you say that the books are about injustice, but I, I wouldn't limit it to injustice for Haredi women. I think my books, what motivates me, my passion as an author is any kind of injustice, whether it's for um, um, children and women. Yes, and, we're going to talk about that. Yes, yes. In, in a situation where they're being uh, exploited or destroyed by people who are, um, you know, stronger than them. And I think I am motivated by what Hashem tells us in the Torah. He says, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof, which in English means pursue justice. Now, you might ask, and, and a lot of people ask about that, why does it say pursue justice? Why doesn't it say, it says run after justice. Why doesn't it say be just, achieve justice? And it took me many, many years to figure that out. Why does the Torah say run after justice? 
only when I tried so hard to right wrongs in the world through my writing and through my activism did I understand why it's phrased that way. You can run after justice your whole life and never, ever catch it, never be able to right any wrongs. But that doesn't stop your obligation to keep trying. And I think with my books and with my activism and everything that I've done in my life, that that is what I've been doing. Maybe it's, I don't know, it's sort of Don Quixote in a way. I mean, you can never write every single wrong in the world, but I have- Oh, you're, you're getting my... there. You are definitely touching upon the most important aspects. And we're gonna get into that as, as the show goes on. Well, I, I think what motivates me is you know, as an Orthodox Jew, my religious obligations. What are your religious obligations? You know, the, it's not the things that people think. You know, they, they people talk about, okay, you know, kosher food. The Torah is not really, it doesn't really discuss kosher food. I mean, it doesn't talk about glot kosher food. It doesn't talk, you know, it says don't eat meat and milk. You know, it doesn't even say don't eat meat and milk. It says don't boil a calf in his mother's milk. Yeah. But what does the Torah tell you 10 times, 20 times, 30 times, 40 times, again and again and again? It says, do not oppress the stranger. Do not make a convert feel uncomfortable. Be kind to the widow and to the orphan. Take the stranger in your midst and, and help them. Bring them in. And these are the things that I think need to be emphasized in the Jewish world. And what I try to emphasize so much with my books, when I try to, to make people understand, if you are going to consider yourself an Orthodox Jew, these are the things you should be concentrating on. You shouldn't be concentrating on how long your tits are or how long your wig is or oppressing your next door neighbor because you don't like the fact that she buys certain, you know, food without the hexa that you approve of. You know, there needs to be a real consciousness in our lives of what God is asking of you. And that is, it's an unusual thing, I think, maybe for an author to be motivated by. I don't know many um, Orthodox Jewish authors, except maybe Herman Wook, who I would say um, is truly a role model for me. If anybody has ever read his book, This Is My God, you'll understand where he's coming from, because Herman Wook was an Orthodox Jew. He raised his children as an Orthodox Jew and his values are that of an Orthodox Jew. And I think that it's very inspiring to read some of the things he's written, especially that book, This Is My God. It's, it's, it's a wonderful book that I keep on my bookshelf that I take down often. Um, so I'm in this position where I'm part of this society, which is the Orthodox Jewish world. And when I came into this world, I, was sort of a balachuva, you know, uh, a, a sort of a, uh, I wouldn't say a new, newly Orthodox Jew because I had decided to become Orthodox when I was in Hebrew day school. My family was not Orthodox. My family did not keep Shabbat. My mother was a widow and she sent me to an Orthodox Jewish uh, day school because we lived in a low income housing project. And uh, the public school I went to was, um, didn't have any Jews, you know, it was mostly black and Puerto Rican. 
and there were many Catholics who got religious training. The nuns would come in in first grade and take the children out to to give them training in, in Catholicism. And um, she, somebody else in the neighborhood said to her, well, why don't you send her to the Hebrew day school? You know, it, it, it's a, it, she'll get better math than English. That's what she said, you know, and, and my mother said, okay. And she said, but you know, we really don't have any money. She said, no, don't worry. You know, they take uh, children from poor families, there are scholarships you can get. So I got enrolled in an Orthodox Hebrew day school when I was going into second grade. Mm -hmm. And it was at that moment that I decided, um, first of all, my initial feeling was, this is weird. <laughs> you know, what is this? You know, they're trying to teach me to read Hebrew. I don't even know how to read English. And they're teaching me a language you read backwards. And I couldn't understand maybe for a few years what was going on. And then all of a sudden, I, I think um, at a certain point it hit me what the Torah was, you know, there was a certain passage in um, in the in the Torah, which it says it said, "Do not um, oppress the widow and the orphan, because I will make your wife a widow and your children orphans." And I thought to myself, how many times my mother had been oppressed, how many times people had been unkind to her because she was poor, and and I thought, well, this is. This is so important. Here is a book and here is a God that cares about me and cares about my family and cares about justice. And I think that that was a moment that I decided that, that I was gonna be serious about this, that I was gonna think about these things seriously. And at a certain point in my life, I was probably 11 or 12, I decided that we were gonna be, uh, you know, Sabbath observers and, um, it was interesting because my mother worked full time. Of course, she was supporting the family and she would get home two minutes before you had to light candles on Friday. She had a job in, in um, if you know New York, in Borough Hall in the um, in Ministry of Education. And she was a secretary and she came home. And if I wanted our family to keep Shabbat the way I saw when I slept over the homes of the children in my class, then somebody was going to have to make this meal and it wasn't going to be my mother. So it was going to have to be me. And uh, I, I went out and I bought the food and I would call her up and say, how do you make chicken soup? And then I would make the chicken soup and I would buy the halot and I would set everything up so we would have a Friday night meal. And um, that was that was the moment when I think that um, it, it brought certain comfort and richness into all our lives. and. Um, into my brother's lives, into my mother's life. And from that moment on, uh, the family began to keep Shabbat. And um, it was a real transformation for me to go from one lifestyle to another. So here I was when I graduated high school, I decided I wanted to be a writer. Uh, the reason I wanted to be a writer was that um, I always got very good grades in composition. And there was a reason for that. And that was because I spent a lot of time, we lived on the seventh floor in a low income housing project. And I was afraid to go down the elevator because if you went down the elevator, you never knew who was going to get on. And there were some pretty scary people in that building. And when I was a child, I didn't want to take the chance of going down that elevator by myself and going to the playground. So I spent a lot of time in the house reading. We'd go to the library. My mother would take me to the library and I had a library card when I was five years old and I would 
I taught myself how to read, my mother helped me, and I would read a tremendous amount out of boredom and loneliness. And by the time I was seven years old, eight years old in class, I had a vocabulary which nobody else had because of all the books that I've read. So of course, my teachers gave me wonderful grades and all of my um, and all of my compositions, as they used to call them. And so, you know, I I won some writing contests when I was in school when I was very young, and they gave me a gold medal which said essay on it, which I have to this day, and. To me, that was that was a real alchemy. You, how can you turn a piece of paper into a piece of gold by writing on it? And and that's how I transformed this situation. So by the time I finished high school, I knew I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to get a degree. And the school that I went to was a college prep school. We had the best teachers, uh, you know, these were mostly kids from very rich families, and they wanted their kids to be doctors and lawyers and dentists, and um, everybody was accepted, or almost everybody accepted to the college of their choice. And I wanted to be a writer, and I went after that. But I also wanted to pursue my religious studies because I felt I didn't want to be you know, um, in a certain level in my secular studies, and I would increase my knowledge and I would be more sophisticated and I would get a degree, but I'd always stay the same way in my religious studies. So I went to a religious studies program for women, a seminar for women, the Saresh Schneira Hebrew Teacher Seminary in Borough Park. And I was there at night in the evening things and in the morning I was in college and um, and that is that is how I began my education and uh, there was a certain point I guess where I decided that it didn't really make sense for me to keep living in America I I think in college I read this book while six million died and that was a history of what had happened to the Jews in Europe and and what American Jews did for them and what the, the American administration did during the Holocaust, that was pretty shocking to me. And I it was, I think at that moment that I really decided that um, I, it was just an accident that I was born in America and that the place where I belonged was Israel because that was the Jewish homeland and I wanted I wanted my taxes, I wanted my work, I wanted my family, I wanted everything I would do in my life to build a homeland for the Jewish people. That's where I wanted my youth to be spent, my my life to be spent working on that because that I think was the most important contribution that I could make as a Jewish woman in the world that I lived in. So. Uh, Pretty soon, I mean, I I wasn't really looking for a husband, honestly. I was really, I was a sophomore in college and I was supposed to go to Israel for my uh, junior year. I had already, it was all set up. I had a whole a full scholarship to Hebrew University and in my sophomore year, I met, I met my husband. And I kept saying to him, you know, I'm not gonna be here next year. I'm going, I'm on my way. And he kept saying, he didn't say anything. He was very smart. He was just like, yeah, yeah, you know, okay. And um, 
at a certain point, I think we were, it was April or something, and I was supposed to leave a few months later. And he said to me, listen, well, let me suggest this to you. Why don't we get married? And I promise you that we'll make Aliyah and then we'll live in Israel forever. And then if you want to go to Hebrew, you can go to Hebrew. You can do whatever you want, but just don't go without me. So I said, I want it in writing. So, uh, <laughs> so he, we were in a restaurant and he wrote it out in a napkin <laughs> and I have it to this day. There was a contract between us and um, on this basis, I agreed to marry him. And we um, actually did make Aliyah very soon after our wedding. So it, it, it all happened, it all came true. And there it was in the land of Israel, my dream, and I was living in an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood. And most of the women around me were also um, new immigrants. It was a special neighborhood called Sanhedrin Mochevet, where the Jewish agency decided they were going to send as an experiment all the religious new immigrants that came to Israel. So my neighbor was from Sweden, from Great Britain, from Russia, um, from, you know, all over the world, Morocco, we had, it was a, a kibbutz kalagyot. And I decided at a certain point, uh, I had two little kids by then, and I decided I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to get, I was, I was really, I was bored. And that's the truth. I decided I wanted to get a master's in English literature. And there were things going on in the neighborhood uh, that were problematic in the sense that I learned about things that I didn't know anything about. I had a a neighbor who was an immigrant from Borough Park. No, she was from Williamsburg. And, you know, she had six kids. They were ultra-Orthodox and we were very good friends. She was a dear friend of mine. And she comes to me one day and says, I need your help. And I said, sure, what's the problem? She said, I need you to help me get a passport. Well, I was pretty shocked when she said that. They said, what happened to your passport? She said, my husband took it and he's, he's beating me. He's beating the children. He's not working and I wanna go home. I wanna go to, home to my parents and he's taken my passport and I can't leave. So I need you to help me to get a passport. Well, I was in absolute shock. How could it be? that an ultra-Orthodox man would abuse an ultra-Orthodox woman, his wife, or his children. How is that compatible to everything that I had learned in the Torah? It didn't make any sense to me at all. And I thought it was one in a million. I mean, it can't possibly be the norm. This is completely out of the ballpark as far as being normal behavior. So I helped her, she got her passport, she went back to America. And not long after that, we moved out of the neighborhood. And one morning I wake up and somebody says to me, you know that woman that sends her, um, her little girl to the same kindergarten that you sent your son to? You know, she's from Belgium, she's blonde, she, she, she comes from this very rich family in Belgium, and then she was married to this guy who they, it was a shidduch, and they said that he was a Talmud Chacham. Well, she took her little girl to the top of the, ter the Sheraton in Tel Aviv, and she took her child in her arms, and she jumped 
and they're both dead. Oh my God. That was, um, that was something that I finally felt, as they say in Israel, nafala asimon, you know, the penny dropped. And I began to understand, no, this is not an isolated thing. There is a problem in this community with domestic abuse, which is being hidden. Because afterwards, when people said she was crazy, who does something like that? I found out she wasn't crazy. She was being um, physically and sexually abused, and her little girl was being sexually abused. And she was pregnant with her second child, and it was another girl. And her parents said, there's too much shame for you to get a divorce. You have to stay with him. What will happen? We're Holocaust survivors. You don't want to embarrass us. People will say we didn't know how to raise a daughter to be married to a great Torah scholar. So I thought about it from her point of view. From her point of view, what was she going to do? If she killed herself, then her husband would have the little girl to himself. If she stayed with him, then she'd give birth to another little girl. And then what was going to happen? She's going to be stuck with having herself and her children abused for the rest of her life. I think probably. I hope it's true that when she took that terrible decision, she regretted it and it was just too late to do anything about it. And I decided that this was a terrible injustice when people said she was crazy. And I said, you know what? People just don't know. So I'm going to write a book. It's easy to say, yeah, crazy, you know. Yeah, of course. That's what they do. Well, they don't understand the circumstances. Crazy is the answer. Yeah. Right. I'm going to explain to them how a perfectly wonderful, normal, extremely sane girl can be pushed to act like this by an abusive husband and by a society who is not supportive. And, And that was Jeff's daughter. That was my first book. Of course, I didn't want the ending to be that ending because what's the point of writing a book if you don't give people hope. So I, I tried to show my character another way out of this dilemma. And I have to say that there were a few people over the years that came to me that said they read that book and it encouraged them to find another way out when they were really in a, in a terrible situation of despair where they might've done something very, um, very, um, self-destructive so so it's, you know it's interesting that uh, in Jeffy's daughter um the book speaks to people in the world of matchmaking as well because it was an arranged marriage and, right um also Jeffy's daughter in Tanakh was sacrificed in return for victory so is there a correlation to that and Bathsheba Halevi in your book well, of course, that was my intention by calling it Jephthah's daughter. What is Jephthah's daughter? It's the story in um, in the prophets where the um, where Jephthah, who is the head of an army, uh, goes out to fight the Philistines, and he says to God, "If you, it's in the book of Judges, which is considered um, the time of the Judges was considered a time of of great anarchy in Israel and terrible things happened, right. and he." in his ignorance, uh, said to God, promised God that he w- would sacrifice the first thing that came to greet him if God would grant him victory. 
And instead of a cow or a sheep coming to greet him, it was his only daughter. And so here he was uh, with this terrible vow that he had made and having to sacrifice his daughter. So, so the book really is about a father who makes a promise and sacrifices his daughter in order to fulfill his promise. And that is a correlation between the name of the book and the story in the book of Judges about Jephthah. So when I finished that book, I expected in my naivete that people were going to knock on my door and go underneath my balcony and say, thank you so much, Naomi Reagan. We didn't know. Thank you for telling us. Now we're going to do what we can to help women in domestic abuse situations. We just didn't know. So thank you very much. Well, that's not what happened. Of course not. Of course not. The opposite happened. Of course, I was backlash. I was absolutely vilified. People said this book hit the Jewish world like a bomb. What they didn't say about me. First of all, they said I wasn't really religious. And then they said that it was all made up and that yeah. I was a liar. There was a yeah. religious woman that of got us. Very typical. Yeah. And uh, 400 people in, in, in listening to me speak and she says, you know, the most religious woman in the room. This is all lies. No, we're yeah. so good yeah. in our deny, deny, deny. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This never happens. You know, she just wants to blacken the name of the Jewish yeah. community. It's yeah. very anti Semitic. How could you say something like this? So, you know, I get very depressed after that. Don't think it didn't, I didn't take uh -huh. it to heart. Sure. Of course, really you're human, of course. I thought maybe. Maybe they're right. Maybe this was too difficult. This was a, a very harsh story. Maybe I should have picked something gentler. Maybe my mistake was picking a story that was so negative about Jewish men. So I'd said, well, the, the way to correct this is to write another book. And in that book, all of the men walk on water. And so I wrote Sota, which was um, about a Jewish girl who is in a situation where she's, um, the word sota in the Bible means a woman who's suspected of adultery. And she has to take a test to see whether or not she's guilty or innocent. She, she drinks some water that's mixed with dust from the temple floor. And if she's innocent, um, she, nothing happens to her. She, uh, her husband can't divorce her and she'll, uh, bear many children, and if she's guilty, oh my goodness! Yeah, her she, stomach swells and she dies. Yeah, she gets the most terrible diseases. Right. So, I wrote this book, and in this book, I don't know if there's such wonderful men that exist in this world, but these male characters, one after another, are wonderful. They're absolutely wonderful. So I said, okay, so so you know, this book is is so much different than the last book. Well. People were complaining about this book twice as much as they ever complained. Oh, yeah, about because you touched upon the taboo topic of the adultery in the Orthodox community. I think and the conclusion that I came to when this happened to me was it didn't matter what I was writing about. What mattered is that I was writing about it at all, because there were certain people in the ultra-Orthodox community that believed that their society unlike every other society in the history of the world, was not open to literary exploration. 
it was sacrosanct. No one was allowed to look at what people were doing. Certainly nobody was allowed to write about it. Yeah. Turn a blind eye, sweep it under the rug and make believe it doesn't exist. Right. So that's that's the way it. uh, At that point, that realization freed me. I became free because I said, you can't please them. They have this wrong idea. And I believe that um, literature is a mirror. You, you look at the mirror of literature. If you don't like your face, don't complain to the mirror. Change your face. Exactly. And that is what I asked of the religious community, to change their face. If you're not happy with what you're seeing in my books, change your face so that you look different, so that these things don't happen. And when I wrote my next book, which was Sacrifice of Tamar, that was how I felt. You know, I, I felt that that I can write anything that I want. So you're but talking about very- rape in that book, and that's another topic that's that's denied in the Orthodox Jewish community. Right. Something very interesting happened to me when I was um, when I was doing the research for the sacrifice of Tamara. I was on a book tour for Sota, and you know you're always overlapping. You're writing one book and you're publicizing another yeah. book, and it overlaps. And here I was. Somebody set me up with a speech in Borough Park. And I didn't realize that till I got there, that I was going to be speaking to this crowd. And I looked out from behind the the curtain and I see this is a room. It's filled with Orthodox women in head covering and wigs and yeshiva boys and guys in black hats and beards. I said, they're going to, they're going to tar and feather me. I'm going to be dead. I'm not going to survive this. (laughs) I was very nervous. I could imagine. But something so interesting happened to me there. I went out on stage and before I opened my mouth, a woman gets up and she's wearing a wig and a long sleeve shirt and skirt, the whole thing, a rabbi's wife. And she said to me, you know what? I'm a rabbi's wife. And I just wanted to thank you for what you're doing because it's very important that you're writing these books. And I got a standing ovation. All the people in that room came to see me. They knew who I was. They knew what my books were about and they thanked me for writing these books. And that was, I was so touched by that and so moved by that. And at the end of that speech, I told people what I was writing about, that my next book was going to be about a religious woman who is raped and um, has a child and she can't discuss what happened to her because of the shame. What what encouraged you to go down that lane on the topics of um, adultery and rape? You know, the sacrifice of Tamar um, as well as well as um, the book Sota. Um, most of the time, I'm inspired by things that really happen. The first book, Jeffy's Daughter, happened to my neighbor. Sota was an article that I read in a Jewish newspaper, um, in a Hebrew newspaper in Mali. It was a true story about a woman who um, who had an affair with her next door neighbor. And they were both ultra-Orthodox. And um, what happened to her was that it was Shabbat and she saw that her neighbor went out with the children. And so she went next door. And then all of a sudden, the woman came back. And she was so panic stricken to be found in the house that instead of saying, oh, hello, Malka, I came to borrow a cup of sugar. She went out on the porch and tried to climb over back into her own apartment and everybody in the street saw her. Mm. And 
And and what touched me about that story was um, how she was punished. She, the man, nothing happened to him. He was equally guilty, but he he had to move away. He didn't lose his wife. He didn't lose his economic security, didn't lose his children, but she was divorced. She was thrown out of the community. She wound up working as a maid. And I thought to myself, this is a story of, of real injustice. And um, and it motivated me to write this story, Sota. And, and so I wrote about a woman like that and what happens to her. And then the next story was also based on an, <clears throat> excuse me, a newspaper article that I read the about. The Sacrifice of baby. Tamar. Yeah. The Sacrifice of Tamar was a story read about a black baby with, that was born to an ultra-Orthodox couple in B'nai B'rach. And that yeah, was... I remember here. Yes, yes. It, 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 yeah, it, it definitely made a splash in the media. And people were like, oh my goodness, how can you write this? Oh, it's a true story. I didn't make this story up, right. but it turned out um, you know, the, the rabbis came, they questioned her. I mean, did you commit adultery with an Ethiopian? I mean, they, they didn't know yeah, what to course, think. Yeah. And, and the truth was that one of the um, grandparents, either the grandmother from the husband's side or her side, had been raped and was too ashamed to discuss it. Yeah. yeah. So interesting. That's what happens. The, the victim feels the one, is the one that feels the shame, not the perpetrator, but the victim. And that's because that's what right. society does to the victim shames the victim yeah. and it was after this um speech that i gave in borough park that i had mentioned what i was working on this woman came towards me to the podium afterwards and she said i have personal knowledge she whispered to me of the topic of your next book i said oh my god this is somebody who really it happened to them and she said, but I can't talk to you about it here. And she was very reluctant to talk to me at all. I said, well, you know what? I'm going back to Israel. Meet me in the airport. We'll talk in the airport. Nobody will see you talking to me. And she came to the airport and sat with me and described to me how she had been babysitting for her sister. And um, this uh, black person, uh, thief, rapist came through the, the door and the only reason I mentioned black is because that's what happened. That's, and that's, that's why the, that's yeah. the grandchild was black. So, I mean, you can't, you can't turn this into, you know, a different story. This is what happened. And he came in, he threatened to kill the baby she was babysitting for. She didn't do exactly what he wanted. And, and that's what happened. And then he left. And she had, unlike the person in my book, um, she had actually discussed this with her husband. And um, he wrote a letter to me explaining to me his feelings about what had happened to his wife. And I was really quite different than the feelings of the um, of the character in my book. But in my book, she doesn't have the guts to tell her husband. She doesn't trust him to be able to forgive her with this information. And in the true story, she had she had the ability, or maybe she had a kind of relationship with her husband she was able to discuss it with him so the situation was very different but i i think that the true story uh, the fact that there was a black baby that was born and everybody was so shocked means that the person who was raped never really did discuss it with anybody and so everybody she thought she had she didn't need to and and so people were shocked when this black baby was born and and i think in that book what i'm trying to tell people is be honest. 
don't don't try to hide something that was done to you. And I, I think there are a lot of cases, especially in places like Williamsburg and at Crown Heights, where there's a very mixed neighborhood. I bet there are a lot of religious women that that this has happened to and um, they don't want to talk about it because they're afraid they're going to be ostracized. They're afraid their husband's going to divorce them. And so they have to live with this terrible shame and this terrible um, feeling that that they can never come out from under this this blow that has happened to them. So I wanted I wanted to write that book. And um, and that book is also about how we accept the other. How do you accept a child? who was completely innocent, his birth is not his fault. And how do you accept that other into your community, into your life, into your home, into your synagogues? And I thought that was a, an important topic also to discuss as far as racism was concerned, and as far as our, our feelings, as it's written in the Tanakh, to, to treat the stranger well, to be kind to the person who comes into your community from from a different different world. So I, I thought that was that was um, an important topic to cover. Yes. But after that, it was like, oh, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I just can't take this, you know, this criticism. I one time off. So after that, I decided to write something completely different. And I wrote um, about the Sephardic history and the Sephardic world. And I went from the ultra-Orthodox community to a community of people who was completely assimilated. In my imagination, that's who I was writing about, rich Sephardic Jews in America who were just at the edge of complete assimilation and throwing off any, any kind of connection to their Jewish heritage at all. And I think the Sephardic legacy, uh, even though I'm an Ashkenaziyah, Tahola, you know, pure from both sides. My father was from the Ukraine and my mother was from Lithuania, so there's no Sephardic blood in my family, as far as I know. But I absolutely loved the story of Dana, Dana Gracia Mendez when I read it by accident in a used bookstore, a book of history from Cecil Roth. And here was this woman who was the richest woman in Europe and is widowed at a very early age. And she's in the middle of the Inquisition. They're coming to get her. And what does she do? She takes all her wealth and she uses it to benefit the Jewish people and to get her fellow Jews out of Portugal to lands where the Muslims, ironically, are ruling. And um, they had a much more tolerant attitude towards the Jews than the Christians at that time. And so she risked her life in order to save um, um, the Jews at that time and also to re-educate Jews who had lost contact with their Judaism because of what had happened during the Inquisition. She, she had books translated. She had the Tanakh translated into um, into Portuguese and into um, Spanish. And uh, she opened up yeshiva. She was an unbelievable role model. And I and I thought to myself, what would her descendants be doing today? Right. They have this unbelievably wonderful legacy, as every single Jewish person has an unbelievably wonderful legacy. Whether you're Sephardic or you're Ashkenazi people died so you could be a Jew, so you could be born a Jew, so you could go to shul, so you could keep the mitzvot. People died. 
your ancestors sacrificed their lives for this. So how can you throw it away like an empty suitcase that doesn't have anything to do with you? And that was why it was very important for me to write that book. And, and I wanted people to think about that, to think about the legacy they're handing down to their children. And for young people also to read this book and to think, wow, this was, this is what my ancestors did. They were willing to risk their lives in order to be Jews. And I, I think this is a very important message for yes, everybody. Yes, that, yes. You know, surrounded by anti-Semitism and people say, well, you know, what do I need it for? It's so difficult, you know, so, yeah. so this is something yeah. important. Naomi, um, your book, The Devil in Jerusalem, was a topic that, wow, you were courageous to bring to the forefront. That was the gripping story of obsession and child abuse within the Haredi community. What inspired you to write that book? Oh, my goodness. You know, I was living, I had lived until very recently in Jerusalem. And this story happened in Jerusalem. And what inspired me was the fact that it happened to new immigrants from America, you know, religious immigrants from America. And I thought to myself, there are so many predators around the watering holes of holiness in, in this city. People come here to live holy lives. And there are all these predators waiting to, to take advantage of that. All of these people that you know, see them as easy prey. And this was a story of a young couple with children who came to Israel and they got involved with what they thought was a Hasidic wonder rabbi. And, and I, I think one of the things that inspired me to get involved in this story is what I call backdoor um, idol worship, which is what I see a lot of this stuff going on mostly in the Sephardic community, but also all over Ashkenazi communities. Also, when you have this rabbi and they, they call him the X-ray, he can tell you whatever's wrong with you. And if you give him money, he'll he'll put his hands on you and whatever cancer you, you have. You, yeah. yeah. You know, and people fall for this. Intelligent people, learned people, rich people, businessmen. Oh, yeah, people get brainwashed very easily, sure. It, yeah, they wear the rift springs and they, you know, and this to me, if you want to talk to God, if you want God to help you, you don't need an intermediary. When you put an intermediary between you and God, that is the definition of idol worship. Yes. And I don't care if you have a statue and it's gold and you're bowing down to it or you have some rabbi with a long beard who's asking you for money in order to intervene with God because he's, he's, he's a lot closer to God than you are. You know, that assertion that he is a lot closer to God than you are is the essence of idol worship. And so here I saw, you know, I went down to, to research this and there is a organization which is an anti-cult organization and it's in tel aviv and i went down to talk to the woman who's in charge of this who was a haredi woman and i said to her how many people how many cults are there in israel how how many are there and she said there are hundreds hundreds there are thousands of people that are involved in cults 
And I, I just, I just couldn't believe it. It's mind-boggling. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. But you can see how it happens. I interviewed a couple who um, were, they were not religious, and they got involved in a cult, which was a Hare Krishna cult. Mm -hmm. And they told me how it happened. You know, they went to a Indian fair where there were, um, they were selling Indian products, you know, their clothing and yeah. pictures and everything. And everybody was so nice. They were so friendly, which is exactly how everybody oh, gets well, of involved. Of course, yeah. yeah. Nobody joins a cult because they want to join a cult. They don't know they're joining a cult. And they said, well, you know, you really should come to these lectures that we go to. That's how it would always start. Come to this lecture. Oh, well, they so use predatory methods to, 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 gain, to so, gain access to somebody's emotions. Exactly. So you, you have this, it's all over. You have normal yeah. people. Yeah. They don't know. And then you go from being uh, at a lecture to being at a lecture every week. And then for you to host a lecture at your house. And then everybody decides they want to live in the same place yeah. because they're all such good friends. So then they, they want to live next door to each other. So let's all move to the same place and live next yeah. door to each other. And then there's a person who's in head of this and, and she wants you to send all the children to a special school that she's going to run. It's going to be homeschooling and she's going to, and then you realize, you know, my children are involved now. And that is the most um, significant test of how deeply involved you are in a cult. Because the, the strongest instinct that a person has is to protect their children. Yes. And if you are willing to endanger your children or to allow somebody else to come in and tell you what to do with your children, then you're lost. Right. You're finished. Yeah. And that is what happens. That's it. It's, it's over for the person. Yeah. Out. Yeah. Wow. Can you tell us about your latest book and sequel? Well, the last two books that I wrote. Um, most recent. Let's first, say the most recent because... <laughs> Naomi, I, I, I have to keep on reading your books. <laughs> the last two books, which were my, I think, my 12th and 13th book, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the 12th book was called An Unorthodox Match. And this was a book about somebody who is 30 years old and has a great job and lives in America. And she decides her life is empty. She wants to get married. She can't find a serious, a serious boyfriend who wants to settle down and have children. And this convinces her that among Orthodox Jews, the men are more serious. They want to have families. They want to get married. They're willing to commit. So she decides to become an Orthodox Jew. And I describe what happens to her. She goes to Borough Park to live. And she goes through the process of trying to find a husband and trying to find a life. And the difficulties that she finds are surprising. Her reception in the community is surprising. And the man that she falls in love with is also very surprising. It's not one of the people she's being matched up with, but somebody she meets on her own who's a widower with five children. And the older children are appalled by the fact that he's involved with a woman who 
uh, is a um, newly orthodox and doesn't come from an orthodox background. There's a lot of snobbery involved, a lot of, um, you know, we're, we're too important to be involved with someone who wasn't religious her whole life. And I described that. And after I finished writing that, and we were up to the engagement party, I thought to myself, wow, there's so many other scenes I want to see in this book. I want to see them get married. I want to see what happens after they get married. Is the community going to be accepting? Um, are, are the children going to get used to her? What's going to happen? And so I decided for the first time in my life, I decided to write a sequel called right. An Observant Wife, which picks that story up and takes it through very surprising things that things that surprised me, which I really didn't expect <laughs> that were going to happen in this book, which did. And um, how these two people who are both, they're both wonderful people, I think, this ultra-Orthodox girl, um, and you know, this girl who goes into the ultra-Orthodox community and tries to be an ultra-Orthodox wife, how is she going to deal with so many things that are so difficult for women who are in religious lives, like like the idea that you can't touch your husband for two weeks out of the month, yeah. you know? Yeah. How, how is a modern woman going to deal with that? How right. is she going to get used to that? And mm. her husband has to leave the yeshiva. He's been studying and his wife was supporting him. And now because of all the deaths, because of his wife passing away, he has yeah. to go out and get a job and he has to leave the yeshiva. How is he going to manage that? How is he going to feel about having to work for a living? And how is he going to feel about this woman that he's married that in so many ways he, he, doesn't, he doesn't know her very well? And and also sexually, they're not on the same wavelength. I mean, he's only known other one other woman who was a virgin who was 18 when they got married. He doesn't know anything. And this is a woman who is a modern woman. She's 30. She's been through a few relationships. He's afraid of 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 not being able to satisfy her and, and not being able to be enough for her. And and it's interesting to see what happens to this couple and and how the community um behaves towards them yeah i i have a you know i had a lot of things to say about that yeah and, and uh, i want <laughs> i want your readers to read about it um we're definitely running out of time we can we can go on and on and on um you recently said how certain publishing houses changed the wording of their bible's translation to fit in with their religious beliefs can can you tell us about that well, I never had that problem right. uh, in any of my books. You I don't, I used, but you were talking about other publishing houses, and and uh, maybe our readers can. I mean, our readers and our, our oh, viewers I'm, and listeners talking, can understand I'm, that. You're talking about something else. You're talking about translation. Translation, right? They Bible. use they they change the wording of in their which, Bibles translation. In yes. which they change the wording because they feel. It, if they do an accurate translation, it's not going to fit in with their um, with their beliefs. And uh, I I was talking about a certain publishing house. I'm not going to mention their names, but I have examples that I could give from this publishing house in which they really do things that I think are sacrilegious. They take the holy word of the Bible and they change it in right. order to fit into some prescription. 
But then I got a copy of a new translation, which Rabbi Sachs was involved with, Allah HaShalom, the Mandarin um, Bible from um, Koran Press. And I love this translation. So if you're looking for a good translation of the Bible, and I, I tell you, I use this an awful lot because it's so beautiful that even though I know Hebrew, I love to read how beautifully the English uh, translation is. And it's easier for me to go through a lot of the, you know, the the prophets and things that are not so um, well read. People don't concentrate on them. I started going through the whole book of Kings now because I have this yeah. translation. So um, I highly recommend it for anybody who wants to make sure they've got an accurate translation. And then don't just pick up any translation of the Bible because you're not going to be getting necessarily uh, an accurate and um, a good translation to, to learn from. And and since it's God's word, we don't want to change to course, fit into anybody's yeah. religious yeah. section. I, I had to ask you that question. Um, Naomi, one last question. Um, your books are changing the world. You are opening your readers' eyes to the realities of the world and that people are people, regardless of who they are and where they come from. You have written so many books. Please tell us which book had the most emotional impact on you. Oh, that's such an interesting question. Well, interestingly enough, I wrote one book, which was the first book I ever wrote. And the book I became a writer to write. It hasn't been a very popular book. And it came out, it's being published by Amazon. It's not a commercial success, but I think that I'm closest to that book. That book is called Chains Around the Grass. And that is sort of my autobiography. That is what mm -hmm. happened to me and happened to my family. And it's sort of a book about the dark side of the American dream. And um, I think that as uh, a woman who lost her her father at a very early age and um, had been brought up in this in this very difficult situation. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting because when my kids talk to me about what their favorite book is, they always say, oh, it's Chains Around the Grass. That book touched us more than anything else. And because they know it's my life and they know right. it's my family. Right. And, right. and so, um, uh, that I think that that answers your question. Where can people go to read about all your books and where can they purchase them? Thank you very much for asking. Um, everybody is invited to come to my website, which is NaomiReagan.com. And I have all of my books. I have all of my articles that I've written. I have things, uh, reviews. I have uh, links to buy all of my books there. And you can also from there join my mailing list in which I send out every once in a while something that I think will interest my readers and new information about podcasts and about um, other things that I'm doing. And uh, I uh, invite you all to come to NaomiReagan.com and just spell it the way I spell my name, N-A-O-M-I-R-A-G-E-N, strudel at NaomiReagan.com. And, uh, oh, wait a second, not NaomiReagan.com, at 
Naomi Reagan dot uh, com is the name of the website. So it's HTTP. I gave you my my email address. HTTP dot com, and that will get you to my uh, website. If you want to write me, um, my email address is uh, nreagan at naomireagan.com, and I read everything that people write me. And at my website, you can join my mailing list and um, write me, uh, tell me what you think. And um, I'm always happy to meet and speak to my, to my readers. Thank you very much, Layla. This was very interesting. Naomi, thank you so very much for sharing your time with us on the show and for all you're doing in changing the world and the way people think to the realities of life. Thank you to our audience and to Venus. Thank you, Bela. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your host, Bela Seabrow. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can catch The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.